Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Yahoo Sports College podcast. Pete Thamel, senior reporter, Yahoo Sports, with a special edition of the Yahoo College Sports podcast. We have an extensive interview with the Georgia basketball coach, Tom Crean, which I have nicknamed Tom Crean's Football Life. So it's a one of the premier basketball coaches in the country talking to us about how his relationships with football coaches and studying football coaches over the years has helped his basketball programs, be it at Marquette, be it at Indiana, and obviously now uh, entering his first season at the University of Georgia. To give you a little background on Tom before we dive into the interview, he is married to the former Joni Harbaugh, now Joni Crean, obviously. Her two brothers are obviously the coach of Michigan and the coach of the Baltimore Ravens, Jim Harbaugh and John Harbaugh. And so Tom explains basically that through studying the Harbaugh's and Jack Harbaugh obviously was the national championship winning coach at Western Kentucky. And that when Tom was an assistant coach, that's where he met Joni. So through studying the Harbaugh's he learned that he could learn a lot about philosophy organization and some different nuances of football that could translate into his basketball programs. From there, Tom was an assistant at Michigan state where he met a young Nick Saban, who was the head coach of the Spartans. He learned a ton from Saban, gives some really interesting insight into watching film with Saban and how he learned from him. And then as Tom went on and he, and he courted and cultivated more relationships, uh, he got to know Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots uh, through his friend Mike Lombardi. He got to know Tony La Russa from the baseball side of things. And uh, obviously when he was in Wisconsin, he developed a relationship with Mike McCarthy, the Packers coach. So uh, that's just a, a little tee up for this uh, for this interview where Tom Crean, the Georgia basketball coach, walks us through his football life. We're in Athens, Georgia, with a special guest today, Georgia basketball coach Tom Crean for a football themed podcast. We're going to call it Tom Crean's Football Life. Uh, Tom, we're going to take a look back through your career of how studying football coaches, you in, in my career, I've never met a basketball coach or a coach from outside who's relentlessly studied another sport as much as you have uh, looked at football to glean things to bring to your own programs. And I guess my first question would be at what point in juncture in your career did you learn that you could learn 
from the sport of football to help your programs get better at basketball? Well, I think I always had a, a love for football because I grew up watching it. I grew up uh, in Michigan. So you obviously had Michigan, Michigan State. We had the Lions. I was a big Cowboy fan, the whole deal. But I think really for me, being with Tom Izzo for my first year as a graduate assistant and the love that he had for football, all right, we were around it a lot. You know, not only the games, but there was a lot of football talk. But for me, it's two parts. With moving to Western Kentucky, and, and meeting Joni and her dad, obviously being the football coach there, I started to see the philosophy of it. I started to see the management of it. I started to see the issues that a head coach goes through. But really the person that I probably really started having the technical conversations with and really started to see the parallels was with John Harbaugh, especially when he was special teams coach of the Eagles, you know, before he was DB coach for a year and then obviously took over the Ravens. But we would have some really good conversations and it was like a light bulb would go on more and more for me, how much that played into both offense and defense, especially when it came to skill development, when it came to hand placement, when it came to how you move your feet, how you got around people, because we're always looking for space. We're always looking to create space, but we're always looking to play downhill. And even though I didn't know those terms really at the beginning, I started to learn. I mean, this is really there's a ton of parallels here. All right. So we'll wind back because your first lessons probably came uh, metaphorically anyway at the Thanksgiving table in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And forgive my lack of a timeline here. I know Jack Harbaugh won a national title at at Western Kentucky. I'm not sure which window you were there working for uh, Ralph Willard when you met Joni. What what do you remember about that program? Obviously, it went through some difficult times now. It it sort of faced a little bit of, you know, some some difficulties and it's obviously endured and really grown. And, and, you know, quite frankly, it's a it's a it's a strong conference USA football program right now. What what were some lessons from Jack back at Western when you look back? uh, You said, you know, philosophically managing people, organization. I went there in 1990. And shortly after that, they were going to disband the football team. They were going to disband the program, I should say. And and, and it was going to be gone. But I learned X and O's. I learned scheme. I learned that you had to have something different that was really, really hard to prepare for. And it coincided with the with a young quarterback from Bradenton, Florida coming in and Willie Taggart being that guy. And I learned a lot about family, Pete. I mean, I really did. Jim and John got behind their dad in so many ways and both had full-time jobs. You know, John was coaching in college and then the NFL and Jim was playing quarterback for the Bears and the Colts. And to me, the way they rallied around him, Jim getting gear, Jim getting old gear, used gear from the Bears, every new contract that Jim did with a football or an endorsement deal, a logo athletic back in the day, they all were connected into Western Kentucky football. They literally brought that program back on a shoestring budget. And I'm giving the shoe the benefit of the doubt on this. I'm not kidding. It was unbelievable. And there's a famous story, I believe, of Jim working for his dad for like a dollar going to recruit Willie Taggart out of high school in Florida. You know, Willie Taggart was his biggest name recruit, but there were numerous recruits. And it is true about the dollar. And, and Jim was the unofficial assistant coach. They, they, he was able to do it as far as, cause they didn't have as many staff members then. They had definitely lost staff members where everybody else was recruiting and, and working that they were coaching against with the max number they were under. So it worked out really well for Jim. And Jim took great pride in the competitiveness of recruiting, just like he does as a player or just like he did as a player and now as he does as a coach. And there's no question that that time in his life 
had to be what made him such an excellent recruiter because he would go to Florida. He didn't have to stay in a hotel because he had a home in Florida, but he'd be all over in the off season. And during the season, he would come down on his off day. He would fly in from Chicago after the Monday afternoon work that they would do after a Sunday game, be there Tuesday, fly back Tuesday night. And when he was in Indianapolis, he would drive down and drive back. And it was incredible to watch that. But that's the love they had for their dad. That's the love that they had for football. And they wanted it to succeed. I remember being at the NFL Combine three or four years ago, and uh, Bill Belichick had swung through uh, to visit you in Bloomington and spend some time with you and some of his uh, staff in New England. That's obviously a, a long relationship that you've cultivated over the years. What, walk me through, Tom, how you got to know Bill and maybe some stuff you've gleaned from studying and observing him in some different settings. Well, the relationship is, is, is one that's credit to two people, Tony LaRussa who became a friend of mine in the early 2000s, 2002, I guess it was, and Mike Lombardi, you know, who's got a long-standing relationship with Bill. And so my first time actually getting to be around him was at the University of Florida Football Clinic. I believe it was, I think it was 2009. But Urban Meyer was the head coach. Tim Tebow was still playing. I had a former strength coach of ours at Marquette was the assistant to Mickey Marotti there, Scott Holsapel. So we went in, Tim Buckley, Jeff Watkins, and a couple people on my staff and spent the day. And I got a chance to walk around with Bill and watch how he evaluates positions because that was really interesting to me. And it was a whole other level of being able to see how he sees it. He actually did a demonstration on offensive tackle, defensive end, hand placement right there in the field, right? And, uh, you know, put his hands on the inside and people are watching, but I'm loving it, right? Like, hey, I might get thrown on the ground by Bill Belichick, right? Like, I didn't really want that, but like, I'm leveraging myself and, and uh, but he was showing me technique. I mean, you see it now when you watch film, you see it when you watch his practices. He's a hands-on coach. He's not standing there with his arms folded. He is a hands-on coach. You see it at the pro days. He's hands on. And so that was really good for me. But but uh, so he's been very accessible to me. I never try to wear it out. He's been excellent with me. But he came up after one of the Super Bowl wins, spent a day in there. We probably spent he took a lot of pictures of what uh, we had inside of our building, you know, signs, different things we did with hustle boards. We talked wingspan. We talked college testing. What were the drug tests like? What were these tests like? What were that test like? And compared them to what they were like in the NFL. And we really talked about character, you know, the character of a player and how it has to come out in their work ethic, how it has to come out with their teammates, things of that nature. And then what was interesting is he went and sat in the football offices. I don't think he'd announced that he was coming. And he sat over there, and I think he watched film of Jordan Howard, who plays for the Bears now for a couple of hours, came back and watched practice, spoke to our team, which was phenomenal. None of us will ever forget it. And he went back to Indianapolis to get ready for the combine, he and Mike. So you touched on a little bit there, because I'm sure people listening are like, well, how does that help you win basketball games in the SEC or in the in the, in the Big Ten and whatnot? And you have told me over the years that you had a transformative time watching uh, offensive line, defensive line, one-on-one -on -one drills with footwork, which was really some tangible things that have brought through. If you don't mind, Tom, tell me that story and tell me about some of the football things, be it hand placement, leverage, et cetera, that you've learned that have directly transcended to how you teach and coach basketball. 
Well, there's so much of it is like we said, you're trying to get that space, create it, separate from it. And it really started, like I said earlier, with the special teams, because there's so many nuances to special teams. And if you want your head to swim, sit in a special teams meeting. That's why John was so prepared to be a head coach. Uh, his guy now, Jerry Rosberg, that's with the Ravens. There wouldn't be a doubt in my mind he could go be an NFL head coach and a successful one because everybody thinks, OK, well, they're, they're, they're like a head coach of the special teams. They have to deal with every aspect of the team. And the nuances of what makes every position so strong. Well, again, it's about getting by people. It's about creating space. It's about screening. So I learned a lot early in the screening game, the picks. But to me, watching that, it was at a, at a Colts practice and training camp with Bill Polian as a guest of his. And I didn't really start watching these offensive line, defensive line, one-on-one pass drills between John Tiernick and Howard Mudd with any real substance till I started to see it. And I started to say, wait a minute, they got to get their foot around each other. They got to create space because they'd have the football on the field. And how do they get their feet pointed towards the quarterback? How do they get to the, to, to, to the ball and all the different ways that you've got to keep it off? I said, that's ball screen basketball to us. That's driving around the ends. That's driving uh, somewhat on the baseline. It's definitely driving off the wing, but it's splitting pick and rolls. It's, it's being able to take on the switch guy. And to me, Probably the guy that, that, that benefited the most from that in my time of coaching with it was doing it with Victor Aladipo early on because he really had to learn the ball screen game when he got to college. And so we started to make these changes and, and I started to be really, really detailed and focused on the aspects of how were they getting by the defenders and getting that foot pointed in. It's so easy to get knocked off balance. When you're in some type of traffic situation, it's easy to get knocked off balance in a one-on-one, but how to create that space, how to clear the foot, how to get it around, how to have your hips be down and low and turned so that you could get that explosion. And again, they're always talking about the, 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 the hip movement. And I learned so much more. I don't want to sound like I was trying to study biomechanics because I wasn't. But learning how low you had to play in all aspects of the game. And I learned a lot of that from football. I've been lucky enough over the years to do some all-access stories with some different people in different programs. And I had to chuckle when you said special teams meetings because, you know, you had all your weekend warriors who watch football and think they know everything we get about the game and, you know, second guess everything. And this is probably my 16th year covering national college football. You want to learn how little you know about football? You go sit in a special teams meeting and the verbiage is like it's like 500 level Chinese, you know, as as they go. And then it changes quick because it's there's so many different aspects of special teams. It's punt block. It's punt protection. It's uh, punt return. And you go you go on and on. And uh, yeah, I often walk out of those access things thinking like, am I really going to like call for that guy to be fired? Or am I really going to do that? Like, they know so much more about football than me. It's uh, I'm sure you've learned it's just a whole new language. There's no doubt about it, because you can't just come out there with a kamikaze attitude. You have to have that. OK, that's part of it. You have to be fearless. But you, there's so much technique to it. And one thing I've always done, too, and, and John would laugh about it. I, I've taken a lot of terms from football and, and I've added them to what we do in our screening game. And and especially in double staggers and double screens, we'd have the knife and twist, which is two things that guys are picking for each other inside of the special teams areas. And to me, that's that's fascinating stuff, because you see the level that people put into that and you see how many games 
are won and lost on those decisions and how over magnified they are by people that really don't know what they're truly always looking at. But like you said, you look at it so much differently now when you have a better idea of what all 11 spots have to do, not only for themselves, but to help each other get to the ball and then what the other team's trying to do. And it's amazing to me. So my level of respect for special teams went to another place. I'll tell you another place, Pete, where it really hit me and helped me as a coach, especially in dealing with situations. I read a book by Frank Beamer called Turn Up the Wick. And I've never met Coach Beamer. I met Shane, but I've never met Frank. But that book helped change me because he had a book. He had a place in there where he was like going to be on the way out at Virginia Tech. And some of the great success stories have where people looked at it and said, "Okay, we've got to make these changes. And he had a list of about 20 things that he did differently during his time at Virginia Tech. And the way he took over the special teams unit is famous now. But his decision-making and doing it and getting it from his former coach and Bobby Ross and looking at the details, that became something for me and spending so much more time in situation basketball. You know, we have our coaches that scout and they prepare and they're responsible for the game plan. Well, I wanted to be responsible for the situations. And I started that about midway through my time at, at Marquette where I made sure that I had that down better than anybody. Our situations, the other team situations, how we were going to win a game in the after timeout game, how we were going to win it late game, side out of bounds, underneath out of bounds, free throw plays. And to this day, I still have a great passion for that. You mentioned books, and uh, I know you're a voracious enough reader where we could probably do a whole other uh, Tom Crean book recommendation yeah. podcast. But is there may, are there maybe two or three other football books, Tom, that you've gone back to? I know you often talk about a, a Peter King book about uh, the challenge of repeating that I'm not going to remember the name of. I'm sure we could drive a lot of sales for Peter if I did think of it. It came out in like the, the mid-80s. But what are a couple football books that you would recommend to basketball coaches or to football coaches that could help them philosophically? Well, I think there's there's two coming out. Mike Lombardi's book that's coming out, Gridiron Genius. I've had a, the privilege of being able to read that already. It's it's a lot about uh, Bill Belichick, uh, Bill Walsh, and Al Davis because he's got a working knowledge of it. It is phenomenal. I mean, and Mike's a friend of mine. With, uh, full disclosure, but I would say the books to me definitely turn up the wick. Blood, sweat, and chalk by Tim Layden. Phenomenal book on the development and the connection of offensive and defensive football. The book by Peter King was the season after. And you got to really dig deep and hard to find it. He should have done it. He'd be, he probably doesn't have the time now, but doing another one because he did the season after and it was on all the sports. It was on baseball, hockey, basketball, and football. And it was just phenomenal on how the human dynamic of settling and, and losing your edge can play in the teams and how the coaches fight it. So I'm going to miss a whole bunch and I'm going to miss some from friends of mine. I thought a great, great college book, two great college books. John Bacon did one called Three and Out on the the beginning of the Rich Rodriguez era and the end of the Lloyd Carr era and all the drama and dramatic things that went in inside of that changeover. And um, that was a big one to me. And I'll tell you another one's a great one. Bruce Feldman did a book called Meat Market. He's done some excellent books like the, the one on the quarterbacking is a tremendous technical mindset book. But when he did the meat market on spending a year with Ole Miss football and at Orgeron, that was a tremendous real life read. Those are a couple books that I've gotten for everybody that I've had on my staff in the past, because I think they tell you a lot about what we're dealing with. 
Did you start eating uh, Slim Jims and beef jerky and drinking Red Bull in honor of Coach O? That, that's what I remember about Bruce's book. You know, 10 years later, was, you're right. That is one of the great all-time college football reads. But I always think of like Bruce riding shotgun with Coach Orgeron as he's like pounding Red Bulls, driving through to go to Scuba Junior College. I've never had a Red Bull, believe it or not. And I, and I, have, I have some caffeine addiction, but I'm really afraid of Red Bull. I've had, uh, I've had beef jerky one time in South Dakota. I figured it would never be better, so I never tried again. Can never say I've touched the Slim Jim. <laughs> so you mentioned the 09 Florida Clinic is a place where you picked up a lot. That's Charlie Strong spoke. Bill Belichick spoke. Uh, I assume Urban Meyer spoke. Steve Adazio spoke there. And then more recently, you went and spent time with Brian Kelly at Notre Dame Clinic and saw some other speakers there. Any just quick hit gleans off of some, some of those bold-faced names that you spent some time with and, and what you've taken out of those days being around football uh, football programs? Some of the best clinics I've ever been. That Florida Clinic also had a guy named John Gruden. He's an announcer. Right. <laughs> he was at that point, but it was it was so impressive. You know, what really took me is the way they brought video to the clinics. And, you know, in basketball, we want to get on court demonstrations. Right. It's so much better when you can have somebody that's on court where you can walk them through. Well, also the video, you know, the days of just going up there to the to the grease board. Those are hard. They're hard to follow. Bill Belichick and John Gruden could teach so well off film. And I was able to see it even more when I went to the Notre Dame clinic. Even as of late, I saw it with Sean McVay when he came to the Georgia clinic. Just incredible watching him present. And so you take a lot from it, but you also take the way they present and how they get it across. And then you imagine being a player in their room and how important that is. So I've learned a lot about teaching technique. But at Notre Dame, I was able to go. Unfortunately, I wasn't busy because we'd gotten beat the week earlier in the NCAA tournament in Indiana by Wichita State. And it was a Sweet 16 weekend. So I went up to Florida. Uh, Chad Clunder and Brian Kelly had okayed it for me to come. And it was awesome. First class experience. I wanted to see the whole deal. But Rod Marinelli was one of the speakers. And I'd always studied him. I'd never met him before that day. But the way his players revered him. And his positive attitude when he was 0-16 with the Lions. And I always kept files on different coaches. And I would love the way that the players had such respect for the way Rod Marinelli was hard on him and the way that he would teach him and the way that he would interact with him in the film sessions. So I saw Rod Marinelli speak. I saw Ron Rivera, who was early in his coaching career with Carolina speak. I saw Bill O'Brien speak. I heard Harry Heastan speak. I saw Pete Longo, the strength coach, speak. I saw Todd Light speak. And I also had a chance to sit and visit with Brian Kelly for about an hour and a half. It was one of the most best days I've ever had in coaching because I learned so much, so many different ways. And I was probably the only basketball coach in a group of eight, nine hundred, whatever people they had there. So what a first class clinic looks like. But I also saw what a first class program and the way that uh, they made everybody feel a part of that day. It was it was fun to be at. Did you get some like curious glances from like the Mishawaka High School coach who's standing there, you know, for this great clinic and being like, wait a minute. What's Tom Green doing here? <laughs> I think so. But I think eventually what happens is you, you put your hand out and you say, I'm just trying to learn like you. And I think. Football is the one that really taught me to look at other sports, but there's so much to learn from tennis and soccer and baseball and, and uh, hockey. Tom Izzo and I used to go back at his assistants at Michigan State and watch these NHL players come in and train in the, and before they go back to camp. And we started to learn about VO2 max. We started to learn about bike testing. And we go in there and sit and watch these guys do these bike sprints and watch the level. Cause Tom is a, Tom is a great learner too. He doesn't always want you to know that, but he likes to learn, right? He likes to, to study. And, and so 
We'd sit in there and watch these guys because Ron, Ron Mason would say, you need to see the way these guys are training. And so when you see that, it just not only do you see something that you can apply, but it makes you think of all these different things that you could do. Well, conditioning tests and having something more than just the mile run. Okay, which Tom grew up on was important to Tom. So how can we keep doing these things? And what Tom was able to do, and I learned this early on from him, take these tests. How do we make them competitions for everybody else? So a Mateen Cleaves and a Charlie Bell, Mikey be competing to see who could be in that VO2 max test the longest. All right. We're always teaching competition. If we're not, we're going to be behind. It doesn't matter what we're competing in. Little things like that with the bike tests were really, really important. And so... Without watching hockey, I'm not sure either one of us would have picked that up. One uh, coach I know you're close to in the in the NFL is Mike McCarthy at the Packers. I know you spent a lot of time with him. Walk me through that relationship and, and what you've what you've picked up getting to know the Green Bay Packers head coach. Well, early on in my time at Marquette, the two guys that really helped me get an idea of what it was like to coach in the state of Wisconsin was Al McGuire in the year and a half that I got to be with him before he passed. But really amazingly, Barry Alvarez. And, and my father-in-law at Western Kentucky was playing Wisconsin one day, was, you know, guarantee game type of thing. We were there and Barry said, Hey, you ever have any questions? You know, call me. So I did. Right. And I went up there one week, they were in a bye week and I got to sit on some meetings with him and a couple of his people in administration as they, as far as they were laying out the week, we spent time talking. We looked at some film. We went to lunch. I went home a way better coach because he was not afraid to tell me what I needed to know. He was not afraid to point out things about people I was going to be dealing with. They were private, but it was incredible. And I never forgot it. And I had met Mike briefly at training camp and Mike had started out the season, I believe one and three. There was a really, really tough article about one of his coaches that Sunday. And we'd exchange numbers and it was a Sunday night. I'm in my house and, and, uh, Milwaukee, he's in Green Bay. We probably talked 45, 50 minutes. And it started our friendship because I didn't know how he'd receive it, but I didn't care if that makes any sense because Barry Alvarez didn't care how I received it. He wanted to help me be better. Al McGuire just wanted to know that I wanted to know. He never wanted to step in without being asked, but I was asking. I was begging him to help me, literally. You know, I, I wanted to pick his brain as much as I could. Well, Mike and I's friendship took off from there, and it's still as strong as it's ever been. I don't see him as much, obviously, but I got to watch him at the beginning take that program and build that into a Super Bowl champion. And he has got such an incredible – I've learned a lot of football, X and O's, dealing with people, but the pulse he has of his program. If I could say anything about Jim, John – and Mike and guys that, that that have gotten to know this way, they are never afraid to coach their best player. They are never afraid to treat the lowest guy, the 53-man roster, with respect and find value for him. But they are not afraid to coach Ray Lewis, Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers, you name it. They're not afraid of it. They love it. And I think that's why they're championship-level coaches. Well, let's uh, let's transition back to the now We're uh, we're sitting here, the opening the opening weekend of college football unfolding before us. Give me a window into the Crean household last night as Notre Dame plays Michigan. Obviously, it was a pivotal game for both teams. Your in-laws are in town visiting you. Your wife is obviously, you know, grown up. Talk about a football life. No, nobody's lived one more than Joni. Um, what is the tension level like in your house last night as Notre Dame, Michigan is uh, playing on? On TV, you, t- you told me that Jack wouldn't even go to the Georgia game yesterday because he was too concerned about traffic to, you know, to getting out and getting back. The tension level was as high as it's ever been, Pete. It's always been high since the first time I've ever met 
Joni's mom, Jackie, the Western Kentucky games. They want their children to do so well. And they feel that pain. And there was nothing, nothing's ever going to surpass what we felt in Commissioner Roger Goodell's box where he was so gracious. He invited them in and then he invited our family in. And in, in, in to watch that Super Bowl, which was incredible. But the tension on the last drive of the game was unlike anything. I'd never want to experience that again. I mean, I could feel it. My children could feel it. And what my wife, what my mother and father-in-law were going through, I, it was unbearable. It's like that right now. It really is. There, there's. It's like that for Ravens games. Uh, my wife feels it. There's no question Joni's dad is a lot quieter. He's taken the game in because he's he, he sees it, you know, on a pretty much a daily basis at Michigan. But there's a ton of emotion, right? And and what it is, is it's the epitome of family love to me. It's hard to describe. They don't feel the pressure because the media or the fans put the pressure out there. They feel the pressure because they want their child to be successful. And they know what their children put into their profession, what they put into it. And it's not unlike what other parents are like when they're sitting watching a high school game or a little league game or any of those type of things. You know, I'm sure the Archie Mannings of the world and all those different people like that that have had kids, they go through the same thing. But it, it's really tough. It's hard. It's almost it can't end soon enough, to be honest with you, because it's it's tough to put yourself through that. Well, that's a, that's a good way to sort of transition to the final couple of questions here, Tom. Uh, sitting as we are right here near the campus of Georgia, your son, Riley Crean, is going to be a freshman pitcher on the on the Bulldogs baseball team. As he's grown up in baseball and become a prospect and been recruited, I'm wondering if you could just walk me through what you've learned about baseball and what you learned about baseball coaches recruiting Riley and Riley going through the recruiting process maybe that you've gleaned that, that's been insightful for you. Well, I've learned a lot. I've learned, a, I've learned some about recruiting. I've learned about how important it is to build a relationship for more than just the game. What I learned early on in this case, because Riley was kind of a late starter to the to the world of summer baseball and recruited baseball and things like that. The pros, the, the, the major league people do an incredible job of projection. And, and so much of what they're doing is based on where that person's not going to be in one or two years, but where they're going to be three, four, five years down the road. And they, they, they really have a unique ability to do that. And, and Riley played on the um, the White Sox area code games team a couple of years ago in California. And it was tremendous for me to not only see all these different college baseball coaches there, but to see the major league people. Nick Hostetler was the, was the head of scout or is the head of scouting, I should say for, for the White Sox. So I'd met him and some of the other people that were on his staff and watching that and seeing it through both sets of eyes. But to me, it's been so much about him gaining real confidence that comes from, it is truly a process and, and probably more so then in my own coaching life, I've seen what process really is. A quick note, it triggered in my mind a book that I just read, and I know you read, The Cubs Way by Tom Verducci. Now, if you want a sports process book, just how voluminous that baseball world and evaluation world, and the, you know, everyone talks about culture, talk about the culture of the Cubs organization. That book blew my mind. I, I thought it was fantastic. I totally agree with you all the way around. That book is actually where the Bill Walsh, you know, the, the, the big winning, the 800 page book was on everybody's bookshelf and it didn't matter what sport it was. I can't remember the, the exact name of it right now. That's what the Cubs way is becoming. You walk into coaches offices and there it is. And I think one of the most telling things that I took from that book, there was a ton because we were around Kyle Schwarber. 
we, you know, we were around. I got to see that character up close at Indiana. He actually loved basketball. I mean, loved it. I mean, he'd come over and watch practice if he could. We would talk basketball. We just loved sports. Well, he also spent one day talking to my son about how to play in the outfield, you know, as a sophomore in college. But the one thing that I really took from that book, because they focused on different people that turned it, is what Jim Schlossnagel saw in Jake Arrieta. That's me seeing something in Victor Oladipo. That's maybe me seeing something in Dwayne Wade. You're supposed to be looking at this person, that person, but you see it in this person. My father-in-law went through that. John Offerdahl, you know, in the Miami Dolphin Hall of Fame. Coach Harbaugh, when he was at Western Michigan, went to see somebody else play. John Offerdahl played in the first half, played in the band during halftime, all right, and came back and played in the second half, and, and he saw a film of him. All right. And, and he saw a film of him going in to see somebody else came back to watch him play a game. The guy played in the band. One of the best players to ever play in the Mac. One of the great leaders that ever played for the Dolphins. I mean, you never know. Right. It's will you be ready when your opportunity comes? And that's one of the great things that any of us can have as coaches, parents, leaders. It doesn't matter. Are you ready when the opportunity comes? You can't always control when it's coming. But are you ready? And then the other part of it is beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And I thought so much of what the Cubs were doing and the way they were building it. But that Jim Schlossnagel thing to me, just light bulb on you got to trust what you see and don't worry about what everybody else sees. Well, it's a, a good way to wrap it back here. We talked about your your time with Nick Saban uh, when you were an assistant at Michigan State watching the process. And now you get to see a hybrid of his process up close with uh, working with Kirby Smart in the athletic department here at Georgia. He has built an impressive infrastructure. I'd done a story on this uh, back in uh, back in December, January, when uh, when Georgia was in the college football playoff on just how intricate things are in that football office and the student managers and the organization and it it's it's almost like a machine that you know how how it works there obviously with with your love of football i know you've gotten a chance to look at that up close and spend some time with kirby what are your impressions of what he's built here at georgia well we've actually even been able to spend much more time being in travel as far as for donor situations and being on a plane being in a city it's incredible. It really is. I followed Kirby for a long time because I follow football. I follow Nick and and watching what he did and, and, and studying even his press conferences the first year he was here and then the, the confidence that he had. And then last year, and I know I've said this to you, but the story you did on the infrastructure around bowl time of what it was like in there, I kept that with me. I mean, I copied that off, kept it. I was still in television at ESPN, obviously, but that said a lot to me. And because being around Nick early, at Michigan State and being around Kirby, you know, two different people, obviously. But the one thing that I always took from Nick was the intensity that he had for getting better himself, the detail of which he did it and the level of which he expected you to be at player and coach. I see the same thing in Kirby. You can talk about a lot of things with him, right? He's actually helped give us a walk on. We're sitting on a plane one night. He's got a recruit from Memphis. He said, I saw this kid play. Like, you might want to take a look at him. He's already coming to Georgia. He's already admitted. You're, you're going to probably want to take a look. Okay. His name's Jack Herring. He's on our team. He's six nine. There's not a question to me. He would have been a division one recruit. Maybe not at this level, but he has fit in very, very well here. So Kirby's already got an assist to the program and we're just sitting on a plane. Right. And, 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 um, I could see it early here the way the other coaches felt about him, you know, long before I even started spending time around him. And it's not just because he's winning in football. It's because he cares so much about this school. The first night we met him was my first full day on the job. There was a ladies 
NCAA tournament game here. Joni Taylor's team was playing Duke and I met him at halftime and they had to come get us to get back out there in the third quarter. We just could have kept sitting there and talking. So how about the moment at halftime yesterday when Mary Beth Smart came out and gave $5,000 to the Ergel family from Austin P, who I was a special needs child and they had some financial difficulties, put the GoFundMe up. I mean, Kirby said in his press conference, what a great testament to the institution of Georgia. The number I saw last night is probably bigger. Today. It was $136,000 that's been raised for the Ergel family. I know you and Joni donated. I just thought like for the smarts to do that, like what a, what a class thing for Kirby, Mary Beth and all the Georgia fans to rally around the Ergel family. You know, in my short five and a half months time here of being around the smarts, being around Georgia, it's not surprising at all. It, it, it's it's really not. I mean, I think this is a this is a, a group of people. They'll rally around it. There, there's a real respect level for this program, obviously. And when people get behind it, I think so, seeing some of the pictures from the Kirby Smart Foundation day that they did, they did it over in our practice facility. And you see the amount of people that come for that. They know Kirby's one of them. Right. Like I'm not from Georgia, but I hope people are going to see the same thing with us. But I thought what was also really cool, Pete, it, and, and you were part of it with Austin P when that whole team stayed out there at halftime for that presentation. I'm not sure, you know, everybody might say they're going to do that with their team, but to actually have the head coach and his entire staff and that group of players stay out there for that in that heat. All right. To be out there, that speaks a lot about why that program is winning and why it's going to win. Yesterday wasn't their day, obviously, against Georgia. That Austin P team is going to win because you got character. Yeah. Will Healy is obviously one of the bright young coaches in the uh, in, in the country and a really intriguing to me, just guy who uh, is doing things differently and in, in really connecting with Gen Z millennials, uh, et cetera. So let me wrap up by asking about the Georgia basketball program, which we haven't done yet. You, you've been here now. You said five months. Uh, you have your first verbal commitment. You have a good, solid team coming back. You're establishing your culture. Walk me through a little bit of what you've established so far here, Tom, and then what Georgia can become in basketball. Well, I think the first thing I'm not big into going and talking about, well, we got to do this culture wise. We got to do that. I think you build your program. The culture speaks for itself. Right. And, And you get your foundation down. We inherit some really good people here. There is no question about that. And and from day one, I wanted to get down what was important to us. So the first time I met the team was on March 19th. We had a 2.45 meeting, I think, that afternoon. We got the job on the 16th. They were on spring break. We had the first meeting. By 3.45, we were on the court and the whole team because we wanted to establish that them individually and collectively getting better was going to be at the forefront. Yes, recruiting is important. Yes, fundraising and friend raising and being out and about. But the greatest recruiting we could do is making these guys better. And I think it's so important that we get that kind of work ethic, the time that it's got to take, the extra work that you need to bring to this if you're going to be successful and and the the bonds that go with it and, and how the and how the toughness has got to come. But along the way, you want to recruit. It's still hard. It's still really hard for me. In all honesty, when you look not, you know, Kentucky is a template. We want to beat Kentucky. We have to compete against Kentucky, but you can't just follow the Kentucky model for recruiting. I mean, you just can't, right? But at the end of the day, there's a lot of other good models in this this league that are doing pretty well, that have done well. And so it's really hard. There's a real balancing act right now between looking at who else is being recruited, looking at who else is being in the league, okay, and what we have to do. And what I keep telling the staff is we've got to make sure we're getting people that are going to come in here that are really going to play for Georgia. Like we got to learn what it means to play for Georgia because we're at Georgia now. 
All right. This is not a stepping stone for us. And we don't want it to be a stepping stone for any any player that comes in. How do we get those bonds built? And how do we get our program established so that we can continue to build what we have, but to recruit to where we want to go? And we don't want to settle. You don't want to be visible. You'd be accessible, do a really good job of evaluating. But how do we put ourselves in position where we're competing against the best in this league? This week, it really hit me because I was at the event when they dedicated the, the, the new end zone project, the new seating, the locker room, the new recruiting area for Kirby's program. And ran into some people that were telling me they were buying season tickets for the first time. And um, there were some people that could have bought season tickets for the first time. It wasn't a financial decision, right? <laughs> but they were buying them for the first time. That made me feel really good because there's no question we can get this to be where it has to be. And, you know, how long it's going to take, I don't know. But it is certainly not going to happen without a passionate fan base in there night in and night out while we're learning how to win together. Well, that's a good way to uh, wrap up here on the uh, Yahoo Sports College podcast. Uh, Tom Crean's football life. Tom, thanks for joining us today. That was fun. It's a football life. I like it. I never thought I'd get a chance to talk football like that. Thanks, Pete. That's it for this edition of the Yahoo Sports College podcast. Very thanks to our special guest, Tom Crean, who walked us through his football life. Uh, tune in on Sunday again, to the Yahoo Sports College podcast and the Yahoo family of podcasts, where there'll be an NFL wrap-up podcast from Charles Robinson and Therese Paler. There'll be a fantasy wrap-up podcast for you fantasy junkies out there. And Dan Wetzel, Pat Forty will join me on Sunday for our overreaction to the games on Saturday, where we always try to focus on the negative. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader